at the beginning of this year, I felt God tell me to preach all year. And there has been six occasions that I have tried to bring somebody to preach. And on all six of those occasions, it has been knocked off at the last minute. So what have I learned from that? When you get told something, you do as you're told. That's what I've learned. So here we are. I'm going to continue on. I, um, maybe I was trying to um, get around preaching this part of James because uh, it's a little bit harsh. And I was sitting up last night with a lot less time than I normally have to prepare a sermon. And I was just asking God, why is this letter so difficult for us to read? Why are we so afraid of James? And as I was just sitting there and pondering, I came to this conclusion. There's two reasons, in my opinion. And the first is because James ask us, is asking us to change and live in God's obedience, to live in obedience with God. And he, he propositions us for two things. We can either change and live in obedience, or we can stagnate and live in disobedience. See, we believe that God's speaking to us all the time. He's revealing things inside and out as we go along our journey. And we get the decision each step we make to decide yes or no. God, yes, I want to live with you in this moment, or no, I don't. But as I was pondering, there's also a third option where we just stand there and say, Lord, I'm not making a decision. I'm not going to do anything about this. I'm just going to stay in this place. And you know, the sad thing is, is there are many Christians who have lived in the same place year after year after year after year. They have heard sermon after sermon, been a part of worship set after worship set, and nothing really changes. That breaks my heart. I'm walking with a guy at the moment who isn't a part of this house, and I was just chatting with him, and I said, you know, how long have you been in church? And he's been in church longer than I've been alive. And I said to him, brother, I want to encourage you to change because you've been in the same place for 25 years. You've been doing the same thing for 25 years. You've been going to sermon after sermon. You've read scripture after scripture, and it's not penetrated your heart. It's just gone head, 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 and now you have all this stuff but you've not changed who you are. You haven't allowed the gospel to actually take root in your heart and to grow something beautiful. So when we pick up the scriptures and we read James, it's almost like James was in this position writing to the Jerusalem church to say, I want you to do something. Don't just be another pew warmer. Don't just be another person who's sitting on a seat. I'm going to give you a mandate. It's going to be hard to swallow. And it's almost as if James positions to the church in Jerusalem, you either swallow this or you'll never, ever change. And as I was sitting there, it reminds me of one of my favorite verses, Jesus preaching to the multitudes, he's preaching to thousands. He's got a, a mega church that he's in front of. And he says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And all of them, by 12, walk away. What a successful sermon. What a real push. Imagine if I preached a sermon and all of you guys walked away and then, then Matt and Paul are staying and I say, you should go too. Are you sure you want to stay? See, what James was doing was he was following in the footsteps of his brother Jesus and he was saying, I'm going to give you a pill that is going to be so hard to swallow. But if you swallow it, I promise it'll pull you into more. So when we read these verses, when we read James, we sit and we go, Lord, this is too hard. 
This is too harsh. This isn't loving. But as Dave eloquently put it for us, this is God saying, you're 25. It's time to brush your teeth. It's time to get your own cereal in the morning. It's time to work out and get a job. It's time to put your boots on because you haven't had your boots on for so long. Paul puts it in a nice way and he says, it's time to stop drinking milk. I think, I think we maybe changed that. Maybe it said it's time to stop suckling on the teeth. But we changed it because we didn't want it to be as harsh because we needed to feel good. But that's what James is doing. He is lovingly giving us a slap. And I want to tell you, when, I, when I've read through James since we've been doing this, this series, almost every time I sit down with my Bible, I go back through James. And I've got to tell you, this time I've been reading through James, I'm so excited. It's actually an encouraging verse. But what he puts down here in James 4, which we're going to tackle today, like I said, I almost sidestepped so that I didn't have to preach it. And then I could have said, oh, I didn't say any of that. Aria did. But Aria is not here, so I'm going to have to say it. But as I sat down to read James 4, God took me back to Genesis. And I've, I've preached and told this story here before. But I think what James is actually doing in, in, in James 4 is he's, re, he's relaying what takes place in Genesis 13. So if you've got a Bible, jump to Genesis 13 for me and then we'll come back to James 4. It's quite a hefty portion of Scripture, but I'm just going to read it. I'm going to read it and then we can just go from there. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had and lot with him into the, into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he, journey, he journeyed on from Negev and as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at, at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with him, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen pardon me, of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At the time, the Canaanites and the Prezites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram sent to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. It is not the whole land before you. It is not the whole land before you. Separate yourself from me. If you take the left land, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right, the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes, and he saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered, everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zohar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, After Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make you offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamah, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. There's two options, left or right. 
in prophetic understanding, the left, the left means the world, the right means God, Benjamin, the son of my right hand, Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. The right represents the kingdom and the left represents the world. The left represents Sodom and Gomorrah and everything that he thought he had. And Lot came to a position where he said, if I get the choice to go left or right in this place, I'm going to choose to go left. See, Abram gave Lot the opportunity to choose. And what did Lot do? He looked out over what he thought was there and he said, I want the best for me. He looked after this guy, number one. He had every opportunity to turn left or right and he turned left. He had every opportunity with Abram to stop fighting amongst the people, yet he couldn't. So Abram says, it's time for you to go. This is the same position that we right here in the church, in the contemporary Western church, have day in, day out, that God is saying, my brothers and my sisters, stop fighting amongst one another. I have given you all the land. I have given you everything. My kingdom has been declared over you. You can rule and reign as my kings and priests. All you have to do is do it together for my name in love with one another. We get this option every time to turn left or right before us. Like I said last week, God has put before you blessings and curses. Choose blessing. That life and death is in the power of our tongue. There's good and evil. There's light and dark. There's this divide in our spirit warring for us. Who, who had a challenging week where you had to make some decisions to live in the kingdom or to operate by the, by the pits this week? Man, I, I, I've said many times, if, if you're going to be willing to preach it, you've got to be willing to be challenged in it. And goodness gracious, I was challenged this week. Because we are in a war. We are in a fight. We are in a push to say, God, I want to live with you. I want to operate from your kingdom. And every day we get an opportunity like this to put ourselves in one place or the other. The prophetic picture of a tent is a dwelling place, the place in which you spend your time. Abram goes and he puts his tent in the high place with God. He puts his, his time, he puts his focus before the Lord. And Lot takes his tent, he takes his dwelling place, and he puts it in the place of the world. He puts it with Sodom and Gomorrah. What happens to Sodom and Gomorrah? <laughs> we'll have to read to find out. So then we come to James and we read what James is saying. And James is just reiterating, he's repurposing, he's repositioning to the church in Jerusalem. Don't you remember what we grew up listening to? Don't you remember the stories of our forefathers? He says in James 4, verse 1, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is, not, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. What James is saying is that's what Lot did. Lot looked out over the land and he said, what's going to be good for me? And I'll do what needs to be done so long as I get what's good for me. 
And James is explaining this to say, if you live your life like that, you will constantly live in a place that doesn't lead to goodness. It leads to destruction after destruction after destruction. Because God is saying to us, my brother, sorry, my son, my daughter, come and be with me. Come and live in the place that I know I've positioned for you, that I've written out on your scroll. Step where I've asked you to step. And I will bring you into the place. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James is writing to a people, Jerusalem, who are being persecuted, who are being torn apart, who are being ripped to shreds. And he's saying, trust me, brothers. The fight you're in there is not as big as the fight you'll be in if you walk away from the Father. James is positioning them to say, I'm going to give you a position to walk out. I'm going to give you something. Push through the pain. Push through the mess. Because the thing that I have for you is bigger. What James is tackling here, I think, is he's bringing a center line to some of the extreme grace faith teaching that we've seen and some of the extreme law teaching we've seen. He said, no, you can ask for whatever you want and the Lord will give it to you so long as it's not building your selfish ambition. So we bring before us the, the red Ferrari that's been spoken about for years and years, the name and claim red Ferrari. And what James is saying, no, you, you adulterous people, you are worshipping something that's not yours. You are worshipping something away from me. Ask of me and I'll give you anything so long as it fulfills the mandate to expand the garden like I asked you to do. What James is saying is that we have access to every tool we'll ever need so long as it builds his kingdom, so long as it operates in a place that says you want my name to be glorified. You want me to be glorified. We can go to him and ask, but we have to learn how to ask correctly. James is saying here, there is a way for us to pray. There is a way for us to, to pull on the things of heaven, that everything we need is there. That's why I've never, ever worried about finances since Jess and I have been leading. Because I don't want the finances for me. I want the finances to achieve the task that God's asked me to achieve. And if the finances aren't there, I have to reevaluate if I'm doing the task. I know if I push for you guys to, to, to buy me a car, I'm going to struggle to see the finances. Yet this house sows into the kingdom like not many houses on this Gold Coast does. And we are a small people, but you guys are so generous and God is so incredibly generous that we are able at the moment monthly to send out thousands of dollars. Why? Because God will give us everything we need so long as our gaze, our focus, our step after step stays in building his kingdom. And what tends to happen as Christians is we get a little wayward and we start pressing for things that aren't there. 
we start operating in a little thing which we'll get to in a minute that starts with P, but we will get there. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enemy with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. What James is doing here is he is he's paralleling a picture between two things, a son and an orphan. The difference between a son and an orphan. He's saying you don't have to operate in something. You just have to be who you're called to be. See, we get caught up in our intellect, but we have to try and act like we are a Christian. We have to try and be something. We have to speak a certain way. We have to do a certain thing. But James is saying, no, you don't have to do anything except be who you were created to be. See, God has made us a son. When I was a kid, we used to go to to friends' houses all the time. And when you're a kid, you kind of feel really awkward going into somebody else's house, right? You, you like kind of sit on the edge of the couch and you don't know what you're allowed to have. You kind of ask, can I, can I have a water, a glass of water? And you're really timid in the place. You don't know what toys you can play with. You wait for your friend there to get his toys out. And mom, can, can I play? Because you don't own the house. But when you're in your own house, you open all the cupboards, you get the water out, you got all your toys, you know where you can go. You know what you can do. That's the same picture as the kingdom. It's the same thing God is saying. When you know you're a son, you don't have to stop and think, is this the right thing to do? I don't have to stop and think if I'm allowed to get a glass of water out of the cupboard. Because I know I'm allowed to get a glass of water. But I know the boundaries in my home. The problem is, is that we have a lot of Christians who don't know that they're sons or daughters. My apologies. Sons or daughters. They don't know that they've been grafted in to be of Christ, to be hidden in Him. But when I start to understand I'm a royal priest, I am a king, little k, king, in the kingdom of God. Like the prodigal son, I've been given the ring that allows me to buy whatever I want. However, it has to be not hurtful to my father's house, but helpful to my father's house. So I can do whatever I want. But if I reach up and get out a glass of Coke, my mum's going to get real upset with me because I know my boundaries. That's what James is saying. As a people, we have to learn our boundaries. We can all know the right language, but fail to understand how to bring it from our head into our hands and actually outwork what it is we're hearing. A son will operate from who he knows he is, but an orphan will operate from who he hopes to be. An orphan will operate with, man, I wish I had that freedom. So we'll know all the right language. We'll know all the right Christianese things to say, but it doesn't flow out of us. It doesn't come from who we are. It's not in our makeup. But a son doesn't have to think twice. God is asking us to know who he is, to know his kingdoms, to know his boundaries, to know the places he's asked us to go. Why? So then we can operate as sons and achieve what he's asked us to achieve. There can be glory after glory. We have to understand how to operate within our heart, which is our spirit realm, not from our intellect. Does that make sense? Everyone's very quiet for not getting to the slappy part yet. We're not even at the slappy part.
James continues on, James 4. 5 verse 10, he says, Do you suppose it is not, sorry, do you, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy, jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy, jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? The NIV reads that, that verse like this. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? And the passion says, does the scripture mean nothing to you that says the spirit that God breathes into our hearts is the jealous lover who intensely desires to have more and more of us? When we've been born again, and the Spirit of God dwells in us, right? We are the temple of God, and the Spirit dwells in us. God desires that Spirit to flow through us. It was never God's intention for us as a people to be stagnant. It was never ever God's intention for us to get saved, for the Spirit of God to go inside us, and then we just sit inside and wait for heaven to come. That was not God's intention. James is saying that God with jealousy yearns for that spirit to come forth. He yearns, he yearns to see you operating how you were meant to operate. God wants to see us as a people being light to the world. He doesn't want to see us get our ticket to heaven, put it in our back pocket and ride out our nine to five until we turn a hundred and then go to be in heaven. Get a hundred years, remember, Sheree. A hundred. You get to hold your bat up at the end. God yearns jealously. He looks at you. Oh my God, Shahan, I know how I designed you. I know what's inside you. I know the gifts and the abilities. I know who you are. I know what you can achieve. Come on. What are you doing? Why are you sitting on your hands? I put a sound inside you. I put a noise to release to a people. I put a keys to a generation inside you. And you're sitting inside on your hands. That's why you can come to somebody like Gideon and say, Gideon, you man of valor, who you are, I know who you are. Gideon hiding in the wine press. He was in the quiet place of God. He wasn't a bold man. And God comes. He says, Gideon, my man of valor, because he knew who he was. He knew who the Spirit was inside him. And he says, come forth, Gideon. It's time for you to do something. God knows who you are, and he yearns for the Spirit to come forth in you. Like a father wanting a son to do well. Watching a son going, hit that birdie, son. Get that nice drive. Little golf reference. I know, like I'm aiming in golf at the moment. Maybe it'll change later on a different reference. But a father yearning for his son. I want you to beat all the other kids. I love the other kids, kind of. But I want you to beat the other kids. Right, when you watch a soccer match, my dad, when we used to play soccer, my dad was hilarious. If we were in goalie, he'd come stand at the mouth of the goal and just talk to you. Like, Dad, shush, I'm trying to come get up there, Ben. Because he was jealous for me. He was yearning for me to do better. He was yearning for me to do well. God knows your number. 
and he's, he's jealous for you. Come on, do that. Go and do what I've asked you to do. Stop sitting around. Stop working 9 to 5, 9 to 10, 9 to 7. Stop using all of your time for nonsense when I've got so much for you. Know who you are. Stop being timid and shrieking back. I've designed you to be something incredible. That's God yearning. And James is saying to the Jerusalem church, come out from hiding. I've made you somebody to be. I've put inside of you something I've put inside of nobody else. You are you for a reason. And God is saying, come. James is reminding them. He is jealous for you. And he yearns to see the spirit flow. He continues on in in verse 5. It says, but he gives more grace. He gives us more grace. Like a father watching a child trying to learn a bike. When you fall over, you get back up. He dusts you off. He puts you back on the bike. He helps you work out what you did wrong and you go again. And you fall over and he gets you back up. He helps you work out what you did wrong and you go again. The grace of God helps us continue to get to where we are going. It doesn't give us a freedom to sit on our hands and do nothing. The grace of God, as Paul says, is he says, I want to be transformed by the renewal of my mind. I've fallen off the bike. Lord, help me get back up and get going again. All of us are going to get it wrong as we move forward. I'm going to get it wrong. I'm going to say things from this barrel that I didn't quite mean, or maybe I did mean, but I didn't understand what I was saying. And I'm going to have to come and apologize. I'm going to treat Tim in a way I don't really want to treat him. And I'm going to have to go back and apologize. I'm going to operate from the wisdom that's below and not the wisdom that's above from time to time. But the grace of God says, change my son. Lean toward repentance, changing your mind and come back to where I want you to be. Come back to operating in me again. Grace reminds us who's called us. Reminds us what's been given to us so that we can stay on the track with him. Because then he continues, he said, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. One of the problems I have with an overextension of the grace teaching is that we don't be, we, we're not taught as a people to be absolutely heart-wrenched for the times that we operate in our flesh, that we operate in sin. That if we just wipe it off and we say, no, grace has got me, I'm good to go. We don't actually take into consideration how hurtful and what it is we've done. And, and we don't actually take into consideration that time out as a child where we sit in our room and we cry because we know we've let down our father. But what James is saying is he's saying, we don't just skip around and grace has got me, that when we stuff up, we realize, God, my heart is wrenched. 
I'm not okay doing what I just did. Even Paul, when he says, I, I, I don't know if he was crying when he wrote that, but I just, my picture of Paul when he says, I do the things I know that I shouldn't. But in my, in my Ben's view of that verse, I just see him weeping with his quill. And there's like teardrops or someone else is scribing it for him. But I just see this brokenness for Paul. The, the absolute heart wrench to say, God, I'm sorry. Help me change. What we've learned over a generation is that we just, it's okay. God still loves me. Yes, he does. But what James is positioning to the church is get wrecked. Get on your knees with tears in your eyes to realize I don't want to be there anymore, God. I want to give myself. I can't believe I stuffed up. I didn't do it on purpose. And I know you love me. And I know you've brought me back. But Lord, help me. That's what James is talking about when he's saying, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, be wrecked, mourn and weep. Come back before God. Like the prodigal son, when he runs back up the hill and he comes back within his heart to say, I don't care how I get back in the father's house. I'll come back as a servant. Just get me back in the door, whatever I have to do. It's the father's job who says, no, my boy, you come back as a son. You come back with everything that you lost when you left. But it was the heart of the prodigal who said, I'll come back as a servant. He was wrecked by his sin. He was torn apart by the choices he made. He was broken in himself to say, I can't believe I made that choice. But it was the father's love that shifts him. It was the father's love who said, my boy, you get to come back because of the grace. Because he was humble in heart. It would be a different story if we read the prodigal son walking back up with his shoulders back going, wasn't that bad? He loves me anyway. Wasn't that bad, was it? Thanks, Dad. Do I get my ring back? Yep. Do I get my sandals? Awesome. He was humble in heart. He was broken. He realized what he had done. He realized he had walked away from the Father. He realized, I wasted my time in the pig pen. I wasted my time with my tent at Sodom and Gomorrah. Lord, help me. Please have mercy on me. That's the fear of the Lord that James sees when he goes into the encounter. That's the fear of the Lord the church has been missing for so long. If there is something, if there is something in your life right now that is operating, that is taking you away from the Father, God loves you, but it is wrecking your life. God loves you, but it is drawing you away from Him, and He wants you to be wrecked. He wants you to be on your knees to say, God, I want to do this your way. I don't want my tent in Sodom anymore. I don't want to be in the world anymore. He wants us wrecked for him. He wants us to realize what the cross means. He wants us to realize, I did it so that you could be with me. And you're choosing to operate somewhere else. God wants us wrecked.
for him. He wants us to find our strength in him. I spoke last week about the difference between the wisdom from below and the wisdom from above and drawing on the wisdom of God. And I tell you, this week, I said before, this week, God has challenged me where I found myself, I found myself in a place where I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know, I was, I was going into a meeting that's been coming for, for quite a while and I needed the wisdom of God and I'd been praying, I'd been praying and praying and praying and asking for the wisdom of God. But I found myself in a position where I didn't know what the outcome was going to be and I lost faith. I lost hope in a position. I lost hope in knowing that God had it. And I was here on Wednesday morning and some guys were praying for me and I got to the place where I said, God, I don't know what wisdom I'm drawing on. I want your wisdom so bad. I want to speak what you're going to speak. But there's a a frustration and an anger inside of me and I don't know if that's going to come out. And I didn't say anything to the guys who were praying. I just said, I need some prayer. I've got a meeting in the next couple of days. I need some prayer for it. And Ario was praying for me and he's very prophetic. And within two seconds, he he knew exactly what was taking place. He said, you've lost the hope that God put inside you for this. And I realized I was willing to give over my position to draw on the things of God in order to get a few things that needed to be said that I felt in my flesh, you need to hear what I have to say because you're in the wrong. And I was going to go into this meeting with a slap ready to be handled over. And right there, it just broke me. Because Ariad had said to me, you've, you've stopped having hope in God that he will speak when you need him to speak. To cut a long story short, he gave me a word that he said, God's coming down to shut the mouths of the lions. I went into this meeting and there was a guy chairing the meeting and right off the bat he said, we're not going to hear from anybody. Everyone's going to stay quiet and I'm going to speak. In that, I I was absolutely dumbfounded that God did exactly as he told me he was going to do. But in our emotion, in our drawing, in our flesh, we start looking and going, God, I don't know if you're going to do this. As it gets closer to the punch, as it gets closer to the time, we start taking a little bit back. I'll do better than you will, God. But it took a friend of mine to give me a, a royal slap. I've said slap a lot this morning. To realize, man, what am I doing? I'm putting my faith in a wisdom that doesn't come from the kingdom of God. I'm putting my faith in something that was never meant to be mine. And in that place, I repented. I gave it back. God, you speak. And I felt peace all the way up. We got into the meeting. And God silenced everybody. It wouldn't have mattered what I had planned up in my head. It wouldn't have mattered how awesome my speech was that I put together. God said, everyone will be quiet. And I, as the judge, I will rule. I will make a decision in this. 
Humility is the key against pride. Humility, that's what we learn from Job. When we come with humble hearts, God will move. James 4, it says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? What Adam and Eve did in the garden was God said, Do not eat from the knowledge of good and evil. Do not eat from a tree that will make you the person who decides what's good and what's evil. The reason God didn't want us to have that, to have the knowledge of good and evil, is because we're not very good judges. He is a very good judge. He decides who goes and who stays. He decides who's good and who's not good. We're not very good at it. So what James is saying is he's saying, don't let pride make you a judge. So I lord myself over Tim because I'm better than he is because his mess is bigger than my mess. That's not our position. Rather, I have to humble myself and I have to say, God, I know what I've done. You deal with Tim. I'll deal with me. But you deal with Tim. God's not asking us to be a judge because we're not very good at it. Because when we feel good, we'll, do it, we'll, we'll lay a good judgment. When we feel awful, we'll make that guy pay how much we think he should pay. But where does it come from? It comes from a heart of pride. It comes from a, he deserves to get a smack. He deserves it, so I'm going to be the one to give it to him. But James says, no, stop. Lot, Abram, stop judging one another. Let God be the judge. He will bring him to account. Just like Paul says to Timothy when he's speaking about the coppersmith, he says, let God deal with Alexander the coppersmith. Don't worry about it. I will deal with them. Jesus, when he hangs on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. He knew that God was going to deal with their wrath. God was going to deal with their sin. It wasn't his place in that position to judge. He says, you do what you want to do. I know who my father is. James is saying, stop fighting with one another. Stop thinking you're better than he is and she's better than she is because you aren't a very good judge. Let him be the judge. What are we tasked to do? Love my brother. Love him. You're being a sausage, but I'll love you. You're playing up, but I'll love you. Why? Because that's my job, and I'm not a very good judge. James is saying, do not do evil. I'm almost finished, I promise. Do not do evil one to another, because God wants you to operate not in the knowledge of good and evil but from the tree of life he wants you to eat and operate from christ because that's who you've been called to be you are a king and a priest to operate in the father's house as a king and a priest not to walk around and decide who should and shouldn't be james continues on in verse 13 he says come now You who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. 
What is your life? For you are a mist, sorry, a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin and after the flesh. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Paul in Ephesians 5.15, he says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. We don't have that many years left. We don't have that much time left. You can't wait until you get a spouse or until I get my house or until I'm settled into my job or until i found the city that I'm happy to be in. We can't wait for those things before we start operating from the kingdom and who God's asked us to be because there may not be a tomorrow. There may not be a tomorrow. You can't go, well, God asked me to do something. I'll do it when I'm ready to do it. I might do it next year. You may not make it to next year. Now, we don't live in fear of that. I'm going to 100. I want to hold my bat up, I've told you. But there may not be a tomorrow. There may not be a next year. So when someone says to me, I think I've, I spoke about this before, what do you want to do in five years? Man, I don't know what I want to do in five years. God hasn't shown me that far ahead. God's shown me tomorrow. God's shown me maybe next week. I know what God last told me to do with my life. He said, Ben, lead a community of people. This is a community. Lead them with all that you have. That's what I know to do. So how long will I do this for until God says something else? This is the last mission I've been given. Is that five years, 10 years, 15 years? 60 years? Will I be here at the beginning of next year? I don't know. Because God could say, go and I'll go. See, we have to live our life to say, God, what do you want? Every day we wake, we put our feet on the carpet. Lord, what do you want from me today? Ben, I want you to do what I told you to do yesterday. Okay. God, what do you want from me today? God is asking us to lean on him in such a way that nothing else matters, that nothing else around us gets planned before we ask him, Lord, what are your plans? What are your purposes? Because the days are evil. And it is complete arrogance to know. As James said, it's complete arrogance for us to say, I know where I'm going to be. No, you don't. Because God might have had a calling for you. And he might have had a calling for somebody else and that person didn't take their calling up. And now he's promoted you into somebody else's calling because they didn't take it up. Reinhard Bonnke, when he heard, go to Africa, you'll see a blood-washed Africa. When he landed in Africa, he saw another man who was walking who had the ministry he carried on. And he crossed paths with this man. And the man said to him, there's nothing in Africa, it's a dry, barren place. And Reinhard tells this story about told this story about the fact that he believes God called that man to Africa. But he refused to call, so God gave it to Reinhard. So now in his inheritance, Reinhard has Africa that he was never meant to have, but he was obedient to the call beyond what God had asked him. 
Heidi Baker tells a story where she said, I will go, Lord, anywhere you send me, but do not send me to any slum or to children. And it wasn't until she was knee-deep in rubbish in the heart of Africa, saving kids, that she realized God will do with me what God wants to do with me. And she did it. She, she asked, she wanted to pray for people. She said, I'm going to pray for anyone who's here. She said, before you put your hand up, know that once you say yes to God, he will send you where you need to be. Be willing. What James is saying is he's saying, people, put down your pride. Put down your expectation, what you want, what you think it's going to be. Ask me for everything you need to build what I've asked you to build, and I will do what you've asked me to do. But open your hand, Lord. God's saying, open your hand and I will take you everywhere you need to be. If we believe what Psalm says and God has already written our scroll, our prayer becomes real simple. Lord, give me the wisdom, the courage, the strength to live out my scroll. Lord, give me the tools and equip me with the things I need to live out my scroll. If I need money, bring me, bring me money. If I need people, bring me people. If I need a red Ferrari, bring me a red Ferrari. But give me whatever I need to see your kingdom come and to see your will be done. Why don't we stand? you want you can open your hands just to receive or just to show the Lord that you will surrender to him and if you don't agree with what I'm about to say then please don't say amen I've said it a hundred times but I'll keep saying it amen means that I'm going to solidify that in my life that I agree with what's been said and I want to make it so in my life Lord we come before you right now God, we ask you to reveal the inner parts of our heart. Jesus, to take away the pride that lingers in our heart. To take away the pain that lingers in our heart. Lord, we repent. God, I repent for the times when I've operated from wisdom from below. And I've positioned myself against your kingdom and I've become a hindrance. Lord, I repent. Show me those times. Reveal those times to me that I can change my life. But God, I just, right now, I ask you to use me, to use us in whatever it is you want to see done in this city, in this nation, in the nations. God, I am willing to hear your call. I am willing to go where you want me to go. I am willing to step where you want me to step. Jesus, you are the king. And we come as servants. We come as sons. We come as heirs. To say we want to do whatever your will is. Lord, help us to lay down our will. 
to lay down our plans and purposes that yours may come. Mold our life. Jesus, we love you. We honour you. God, I thank you that we can enter into your, your courts like we did this morning. God, I thank you that we can come before you. You are the worthy one. You are the holy one. We declare your kingship in our life. We declare your kingship in this city, Lord. And we declare your kingship in this nation. Use us however you see fit. And in your beautiful name we pray. Amen.